Hello, I am your host, Samuel Hansen, and you are listening to Combinations and Permutations Episode 69, brought to you by AcneScience.com. Today's podcast is a taste of AcmeScience.com's other show, Strongly Connected Components. Featuring interviews with Dinah Taimanya and David Spiegelhalter, I hope that this makes you all decide to go and check all the other interviews out. Here we go! On today's episode of Strongly Connected Components, I have the author of Crocheting Adventures with Hyperbolic Planes and Professor of Mathematics at Cornell University, Dinah Taimanya. Hello. Welcome to the show. Hello. Hello. Thank you for calling me. Well, you're, you're very welcome. I, uh, this was actually a listener-suggested uh, interview. As, oh, that's very nice. Oh, yeah, it was. It's actually the uh, first time that uh, someone suggested it. I'm very glad that they did. Great. Uh, actually, the book which you mentioned uh, in your introduction, Crocheting Adventures with Hyperbolic Planes, it was voted um, by Booksellers Magazine in March to get a Diagram Prize, which is for the oddest title of 2009. And it was voted, I guess, by listeners, some of your listeners probably too. Well, I, I I certainly hope so. I was actually going to ask you about that. What was it What was it like uh, to be awarded with a prize for oddly titling a book? Oh well, that that fits very well with me because actually I'm an adjunct professor, which doesn't have a uh, doesn't have a salary unless I'm teaching, and I got a prize uh, for a for a book which is actually a. The prize is just a name. Actual prize is two bottles of wine, which goes to the guy who nominated that title. And um, so well, and uh, so well, then then there are some, you know, some other things that people are just asking me to do, and then they are expecting me to do everything, you know, for free. I thought it's it just fits together perfectly. Well, I'm very happy actually about that prize because it's my first prize. Well, I, I mean, congratulations winning it. I, I, I mean, of course, there are, there are technically more prestigious prizes, but I don't know if there's any prize more interesting than that. Oh, no, I'm, I'm very happy about this one, because, particularly because it was decided, you know, like it's not by somebody finding whatever it is, politically, scientifically, whatever, whatever correctly awarded prize, but this was just, you know, by fans voting for me. So therefore, I, I just really, I really treasure this. Well, I, let's actually talk a little bit about uh, what that what that book is about. You are uh, actually very well known uh, for being the person who essentially invented hyperbolic crochet, correct? Yeah, well, that's kind of like a yes, no, trademark. <laughs> 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 well, it, I mean, it's hyper, hyperbolic planes uh, were generally thought to not be able to be modeled uh, in our world, uh, especially until I believe it was William Thurston created a paper model, but that, that model was not really uh, very sturdy. I, okay, I, well, so let me correct you, because that's a correction, um, that's a correction which almost goes with a book too. Uh, fairly recently, three weeks ago, no, I knew that the Beltrami had a model, and it's, it's already described in my book too, that in 1868, Oh. Uh, Italian mathematician Beltrami made a model, but I had never seen his actual model. And it was about like, now it's about like months ago, I was contacted by one Italian mathematician who sent me pictures from the department in Padua University in Italy, and they sent me an actual photos of Beltrami models, and I was stunned how similar they are to the ones which I crocheted. And then I contacted Thurston too, and I asked him, and he, he never saw that one either. So, you know, like there are ideas, ideas you just discover them independently and in different ways. Well, okay. Uh, so I, my information was, uh, was <laughs> oh, wrong yeah, on nice that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but you did end up uh, in, I believe it was 1997, uh, starting to crochet hyperbolic models. Uh, why did you uh, end up starting to do that? 
Yeah, well, so that's, that, that is something exactly because the previous ones were out of paper. And um, once you are doing something in a paper then, and you try to explore it and you want to make a quick, you know, if you want to fold it, then you want to fold yes. again. But the paper, you know, that's, that's what the same thing you do with a piece of paper. And that leaves creases, and it's you know you won't get them out, and and, and paper will paper will fall apart. So I wanted to get something more durable that it would be reusable, and uh, and also much more flexible. And like really getting all these pictures, I wanted to show what happens in hyperbolic geometry to my students, and that's how I came up with crocheting, because essential so essentially is the paper is something which is two-dimensional two plane. It's a plane. It's a plane thing. Yeah, so it's something, you know, you can really do it. And so it means I can do these strips. Instead of gluing strips, I can crochet these strips. And that's, that turned out to be much, much better choice. Now, you've also been teaching a lot of geometry, at least as far as I've been able to tell from reading through yes, that's uh, true. your, say, talk lists and everything like that. What sort of change have you seen in the ability of, say, your students to be able to understand hyperbolic geometry now that they have models with which to actually play with the subject? Well, see, the mathematics is always praised kind of like you have to do a lot of things imagining in your mind and kind of like get these insights and everything, which is, well, I agree, it's true, but it's not for everybody. And it's always much more... Um, helpful for learning about something and get new ideas if you can really do tactile exploration. And in many cases is that you are seeing these mathematicians talking about the great results, but you don't see their kitchen side of their research, which is actually making like wiggles and pictures and models and, you know, like kind of like, but once you are getting to the proof and, and, and writing in this mathematically precise language, then it seems so polished and so amazing, and maybe that is one of the things which scares people away from mathematics. They think, oh, I will never be able to think like that. And, uh, well, and that's what this crochet hyperbolic plane is kind of like a ease that way to hyperbolic geometry uh, to the novice who never heard about it. And um, when you hear about it, like, without knowing, it seems that is something so abstract. And, and well, um, that one of the discoverers of hyperbolic geometry, Nikolai Lobachevsky, he called this geometry imaginary geometry. And like, you know, how much can you imagine? You know, you can stretch your imaginations more or less, but not everybody can be so successful. But the approach just with this tactile approach, it really, it's easy to tell about hyperbolic geometry. You know, kids I have talked in fifth graders went to the school and they were just excited, particularly uh, they were just learned about uh, that plane triangle, the angle, uh, some of the angles in a <clears throat> sorry, in a Euclidean plane, it always ends up to 180 degrees. And here I come with my planes, and uh, they fold it, and then they find, oh, but these are triangles where it's not even close to 180 degrees. <laughs> so they were so excited. Oh, I, I mean that's that's great. I mean the idea of uh, getting. Uh, fifth graders excited about hyperbolic geometry sounds wonderful, actually. Uh, now, one one thing I do uh, want to talk about is uh, hyperbolic hyperbolic planes take up a lot more. I I guess there's a lot more surface area in the space that they actually uh, take up. How much material do you actually go through to make some of your uh, crochets? Uh, actually, quite a lot. There is the one. A big pink one, which is featured in uh, in a book. Uh, so that's that's my largest one. Its its surface area is 3.2 square meters. Uh, so well, for some reason, once it was um, in some emergency room where I happened to be, and when they are giving your 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 um, uh, papers when you are checking out, and you know, like they are discharging you. So then I found that for some uh, some reason, uh, some computer calculated that my surface area is 1.6 square
square meters. <laughs> so then that means like that plane is twice my surface area, but I can very snugly hug it. <laughs> so it seems like so that that shows just advantage of the hyperbolic plane that you are getting a huge surface area, but then the volume is much less. So that that uh, the hyperbolic plane with surface area twice as my one fits in less volumes than I am. Now, uh, one thing that you have been doing uh, with these models is uh, putting on, uh, say, art exhibits. I believe that there was a coral reef one in England recently. Uh, that was in so this year it was in Dublin, and actually this coming Saturday on October 16th, that is the hyperbolic crochet coral reef exhibit opens in Smithsonian. Oh wow. Yeah, so that is an organized by the Institute for Figuring who picked up my idea and they just uh, made this one into the huge environmental project. Now, with the exhibits of it that you have been to, what sort of reactions have you been uh, getting from the people who come to see the art? Well, I had an art exhibit in, um, in uh, Cambridge University in Cambridge, UK. And uh, so well, there were some of my models were in this art exhibit. And uh, so, and these uh, these models were put were put on a uh, they were put on a shelves and like you know it's a gallery. People come in, they look at these models and you know like they just look at this art exhibit and they behave like they would behave in uh, art gallery. And you know of course they don't know who am I and I'm in a corner just watching. I just enjoy that. Once they approach my models and they're and there is a, like a two of them, you know, that they quickly say, like, oh, can you shave me? And then these are the models where they are just like drawn to touch them. <laughs> and I have, I have seen it repeating and repeating and repeating. So, you know, like that, it's, I don't mind people, people touching. Of course, you can't, you know, like if they are made out of wool, you don't want thousands of people touch it. It's just, it's hard to clean them. But it's, uh, it's a touching bone to destroy them. It's like when I'm making, there are some models, you know, like which are made out of cotton. I know I took them to one art exhibit, and I, when I arrived, they were just like very unfortunately. I said, oh, they are not really displayed. But then the curator, she was very carefully handling it as, you know, like as it's as I used to handle art objects. And I said, no, 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 that's not the way to display them. <laughs> I picked it up, threw it up in the air, and I said, well, look, it will land naturally in the best form. And she was just like, ah! <laughs> and it landed, and it looked wonderful. <laughs> oh, that that is that is a wonderful image. <laughs> uh, now I want to go back a little bit uh, farther. Now uh, you got your uh, your PhD in in mathematics, uh, and your dissertation was, I believe, behavior different types of automata and Turing machines of infinite worlds. Words, not worlds. Oh, words. Okay, I don't. I don't know how I managed to write that down incorrectly. Yeah, uh, it's but okay. I've, I've been making a lot of mistakes so far in this interview, so might as well just keep it up. Uh, and and you also had uh, other theoretical computer science papers published before that. What sort of uh, connection do you feel that there is between theoretical computer science and algorithm study with this uh, kind of fiber art that you're doing? Is there any sort of connection there? Well, yes, uh, there is because once I'm making these. This, this fiber fiber uh, objects. Uh, well, there is a certain algorithm that I'm following. You know, like that. That is a connection. But then there are there are there are there are more connection, which I actually I found accidentally that there are. You know, since I have been out of a loop, maybe you, you know you can't follow everything what is happening yes. in computer science right now. But um, I found very interesting that there are computer scientists who are. Um, uh, investigating how automata and actually these those are really imaginary machines. What they are talking about, how they are, how they would behave on hyperbolic plane, and then <clears throat> there are really very nice uh, opportunities appear which wouldn't be possible in Euclidean plane, like on Euclidean grids. Uh, for example, um, for example, I think that it's it's, it's just a beauty that. You can make a rectangle when you are doing a rectangular grid. Um, you know, you get the ordinary square paper. Yes, so well, you are making this uh, rectangular grid or square grid on hyper on uh, Euclidean plane or sheet of paper, and you can make your um, cells smaller or larger or whatever. Yeah, so you know whatever size you need. But 
when you are trying to fold, and, and one of the things what you can make the grid is by folding paper. You fold the paper, you get a straight line, you fold it again to get it perpendicular. Yes, so you follow me, you can imagine that. And, 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 and when you follow that and you open it up, then your folds will end, but you will definitely get a rectangular shape. Yeah, and there will be four sides. When you are doing the same construction in hyperbolic plane, and uh, so that smallest cell you can get with all angles, um, with all angles, nine, um, straight angles, all straight, straight angles, as a small, as the smallest uh, polygon will be pentagon. You can't get a rect uh, square in hyperbolic plane, meaning that all will be just like a straight angles. And you can get a hexagon and you can get a septagon, but for particular hyperbolic plane, um, so this is unique. You can't make that pentagon larger or smaller, keeping the size of angles. Once you fix the angles, that is really fixing also the size of that pentagon. And that is a property which can be, um, you know, like this is something you can really explore uh, folding these crocheted hyperbolic planes and making a different, you know, stitching just all these different patterns on them. And so, and then when you go to computer science, this uniqueness is something which is very powerful investigating these imaginary automata or, you know, like whatever machines are being uh, investigated in uh, theoretical computer science and their behavior. I in a uh, Discover article that was about uh, your work with the hyperbolic planes, uh, there was a bit in there about uh, the influences that you had uh, learning in uh, your home country of Latvia under the Soviet-style math education. There was a, a quote that was, uh, you started with the picture, you figured out what is happening, and then you prove. Uh, how, yeah. how was that sort of... Uh, educational style like influential on what you ended up doing versus say the more strict analytical rigor that is uh, prevalent in uh, say the u.s math education system well see, I, th I, I think that exactly influenced me to think about how i can make a durable model so that uh, students first can see what they are doing you know, like how they are, they can see. And, and it's, not only, it's not only unique, because I have seen, like, um, in India, I don't know the current Indian mathematics, what they are doing, but I have, I have, I have seen, like, at the beginning of the 20th century, there is a, there is a book, like, about the geometry and uh, teaching geometry by paper folding. So in some ways, it's the same, I'm doing the same thing. And, uh, and, and, and when I came, and I have seen there are some teachers who are teaching here in U.S. too. They are teaching geometry, the beginnings of geometry, just folding a paper. And I think it's very, it's, it's very powerful. You just see how it forms, and it gives you, um, well, you can, you can investigate later how it is theoretically and how you can build up this logical proof. And that's, you know, it means like you are, what you are seeing, that writing down the proof, then it means like you just translate to the appropriate language. It's like interpretation. You know, you learn one thing in one language, and now you want to explain somebody else in some different language, you know, who is speaking in native language, something different. And there is something, you know, something can be lost in translation. But if you are having this picture, which is, it's universal. Both of the speakers of this, you know, like even we are speaking different languages, but this picture is universal. Look. Now, you spent the first... 30 so years of your teaching career teaching uh, in your home country I, I was uh, wondering what you feel the uh, main differences sort of in the uh, math education are between the US and Latvia um, well yes my children went through US education system I, I really I felt a change um, so one thing is that um, uh, according to um, mathematics, there was like it was like a great surprise for me this um, this issue women in mathematics because I, I I was never aware about that really before I came here you know like that would be something special in school mathematics or something um, well we were you know we were just like equal and um, no it it just never came up to me. You know, like it wasn't nothing, this gender issue, which is like something new. But coming in this country, there was like a, I had a, I had like 
uh, with my own girls, the math teacher calls me up and says, well, you know, you have a girl, and, and we all know that girls don't have an appetite in mathematics, and they're really, and maybe I can find, you know, help you to find a tutor for her. And I was just like, absolutely, you know, stunned. And I said, do you know to whom you are talking to? <laughs> and, I, and, 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 and he continues, and that's a math teacher man, and, and he continues, and he says to me, oh, yeah, yeah, well, but you are a parent. Well, that doesn't, you know, yes, you might teach mathematics, but, you know, you are a parent, and you see your children uh, from the parent's perspective, and then you can be objective. I said, excuse me? If you are having trouble with teaching, maybe you should make an appointment with me, and I can help you with something. Well, it was last time we talked, of course. <laughs> so it's uh, yes. Well, it's 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 you know it's just an attitude, like kind of like a well that 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 would be a one thing, and then the other thing is, um, uh, maybe I'm like I don't know, maybe I'm a heretic in in, in this side. Like there is, I think there is too. Um, what I have noticed is too much talking about talking about mathematics instead of doing mathematics. So that 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 is a difference, which I would like say that shortly. What I'm not, noticing, you know, like let's talk about it. No, don't talk about it. Do it and see what happens. It, fair enough. I I definitely I definitely see us having that that as an issue. I I myself I very much spend most of my time talking about mathematics instead of actually doing any of it. Well, it doesn't it doesn't apply to your podcast. That, <laughs> that, 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 no, see, no, no, no. That's that's a difference. I want to make it clear. It's it's good to talk, you know, like to talk about mathematics, but outside the math lesson in math class, you know, that's where you are doing it. Oh, okay. That's what I mean. <laughs> uh, now, one other one other area of research that you uh, do, and whether it's type of paper that you write, is a history of mathematics papers, and I. I recently took a history of mathematics course. Sadly, I was I was not as impressed with it as I was hoping to be because I personally am very interested in the history of mathematics. Uh, what what brought up your interest in the history of mathematics? Something that generally is not uh, too much studied, other than say results. Um, so I started to teach mathematics um, very accidentally because I never had history of math class uh, myself when I was an, a student. There wasn't such course offered at all in the university. And um, well, I first became the teacher in the middle school and high school, and I was um, yeah. If you if you see in my vita, I started to teach in a school while I still was a student. And of course, as a new new teacher, you are getting the classes nobody else wants to teach. That's just the rule. And uh, so, well, but then I noticed that once I started to tell them, you know, stories about mathematicians, I was just like trying to tell them, well, okay, we are talking, you know, like about something. But those were the people who came up with these results, and I was just like starting to read. And I, I found a wonderful book, which was kind of like a, almost like a story book. And, and, and it's uh, so that Bell, Man of Mathematics, that was, a, I, that was also one of the books I found. And I was just like these, these stories. And I started, and, and suddenly this class, which never wanted really to learn mathematics, now they are quiet and they are listening to me. And uh, so the biggest, the biggest surprise for me was that there was a guy whom I thought that he didn't care about mathematics and me at all. And in the fall, sometimes around October, I was telling them story about Archimedes and how Romans killed Archimedes while he was drawing his geometric figures in, in sand. And it was in May, suddenly this guy, you know, like in the spring, he comes up to me and he says, you know, I still keep thinking about those Romans. How could they possibly kill such a genius? You know, I was, I was like, my jaw went open. I thought, this guy, he still, he still remembers what I was telling him in October. So, you know, like, and that convinced me how important it is to talk about history of mathematics and about the human side of mathematics with your students. So next year I started to, to teach in university, and then we had a department meeting. and And since I was a, you know, like I was a newcomer to the department, they were asking me, uh, what would I propose as a new courses? You know, like what would should new courses would be offered? And I said, oh, well, definitely history of math. And and I said, well, because it's so important, and since we are teaching prospective teachers, they should know about history of math, and that would be like so good for students. He looked at me, the chair of the department looked at me, he said, okay, 
then take it and <laughs> eat it. And then uh, after that, after that meeting, one um, you know, like more mature colleague, she came, she came up to me and she said, "Well, you have to be old, or old and senile to, or young and crazy to teach such a course." Well, I didn't realize what she meant, but when I started to prepare the classes, so then I did realize what it means. It's a lot of, lot of, lot of, lot of reading and getting out and really thinking, and you know, it takes a lot of time. But it's, I was really happy I did it. Hey, well, Diana uh, Timonia, thank you so much for giving me this time to be on Strongly Connected Components. Okay, so thank you for having me, and like, and good luck and success in your work. Thank you very much. So that is the first interview that we have on today's Combinations and Permutations. That was a great one with Dinah Taimanya, and it was really a true pleasure to speak with her. Now, the next interview that I'm going to feature on today's episode is going to be with David Spiegelhalter. And I am very sorry that I'm not bringing you brand new content today, but there has been some scheduling issue problems with my fellow Combinations and Permutations guests, and I didn't want you guys to completely lack for mathematical podcasting material. But before we head on to that next interview, I want to say that the AcmeScience.com Kickstarter Relatively Prime is going strong. We're a little bit over 25% towards our goal, which is generally considered the magic point for a Kickstarter program, but it's only magic if all of you now also support it. So please go to Kickstarter, search Relatively Prime, and give a dollar, five dollars, anything will help. Really. bit.ly slash R-E-L-P-R-I-M-E for a direct link. Please go. Donate. Now, here's the other interview. On Strongly Connected Components today, I have the Winted Professor of Public Understanding of Risk and Senior Scientist at MRC Biostatistics Unit, Professor David Spiegelhalter. Hey, welcome to the show, Professor. Oh, it's great to be on it. The first thing I mentioned was a professor for the public understanding of risk. This is not the sort of position that you would see in the United States. As a matter of fact, I can't think of a public professor of anything here, as a matter of fact. So I was wondering if, uh, for the people living on this side, if you could explain a bit what being a public professor of, for the understanding of risk really actually means. Well, well, I'm not sure myself because um, nobody in this country knew anything about it until <laughs> three years ago either when um, it was actually uh, an endowment from a, from a hedge fund. Um, uh, someone who runs a major hedge fund in this country and who gives money to mathematical charities and, and uh, David Harding, very generous. And he put the money in um, because he felt that the way that risk and probability and chance and the way it was discussed in society really wasn't very good. The stories in the media about risks, the way in which health risks are discussed. Um, you know, he's felt it, it, he'd really like it to be improved. Although, so it comes from a financial endowment, but um, in fact, I don't work on financial risk. It's something I know nothing about. Uh, so it's it's a curious job, and uh, I was given the you know quite the enviable uh, job of having um, of just being able to make it up whatever I did. Uh, I could do exactly what I want. There's no one to tell me what to do, and I've got a you know a bit of you know support to uh, which I spend on people who can write web stuff and animations. I just love pictures that move. And so we've really been making an effort to try to make interesting graphics that can represent uncertainty and, and risk. Now, uh, one of the things that you have done is this uh, Professor Risk video, which oh, yeah. I, a, lot, a lot of people have watched, uh, actually significantly more people than listen to this. Uh, it, I believe last time I checked, it was over 50,000 views on YouTube currently. And Yeah, yeah. And one of the one of the things in it is that it, it shows two different versions of you, a yeah. risk taking one and a very cautious one. And it made a very interesting point at the end, which seems to kind of at least clash with the name or the title that you have. And it's arguing that you can't let essentially can't let little risks rule your life. It's the biggest risk, I believe you said, is being too cautious. And I was wondering if you could explain a little bit about what you mean uh, by by that statement, considering that you're, it just sounds uh, your title I know is not specific, and as you said, you're kind of able to make it up. But it just sounds that arguing for taking risk might be a little bit against what that endowment was meant to be. 
Oh, no, no, no. I, I disagree. Um, I think anyone who works in finance sees, sees risk as having a positive connotation. I mean, that's one of the problems, I think, with the word is it's, it's associated with, you know, all sort of health and safety legislation and you know, the dangers to everybody, every, you know, everything you do, being warned about stuff. And um, I, I think it's a really bad connotation. I, I, you know, I really see risk as an opportunity and as being very similar things. You know, it's just, they're just the flip side. Things might turn out badly, they might turn out well. And so risk is just the idea that you just don't know what's going to happen. It might be good. It might be bad. And sometimes you use word chance for meaning that it might be good, like winning a lottery. But we can, we can talk about something being a good risk as well. So I, 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 part of my aim with that video was to try to get over the feeling that risk is a, is a positive thing, can be a positive thing taking some chances is, is fine, but you should just think about it. And, and of course, the fact that sometimes it won't work out, you have to take the consequences for the decisions that you take. But you can't go around trying to, you know, have zero risk in your life. I mean, it's, that's going to be pretty tedious. I mean, I, I don't think I'm trying to make a big philosophical point. That's not my <laughs> view. I think the, the basic idea, though, is that, you know, life, we don't know what's going to happen, and none of us really want to know what's going to happen. You know, you know we don't want to know what we're going to have for Christmas, and we don't want to know exactly what we're going to be doing next year the uncertainty is just a major part of life and that uncertainty means that things might be okay and they might not be and so my particular interest in it being coming from a mathematical background is trying to get some idea of what the odds are of the good and bad things happening you know what the probabilities might be and so that's what probably what the video is about about thinking a little bit about these and also realizing that some of the things that people warn you about, you know, say, oh, well, doing this increases your risk of getting cancer or having this, that and the other, actually might not be that important on the grand scale of things. In, when you think in terms of the absolute risk, the actual chance of being harmed by something starts being pretty low. So it's sort of, you know, using a mathematical argument, but to make a basic point that, um, you know, we can't avoid uh, risks and uh, we should just see, you know, life as a series of, of, uh, of risks and opportunities in the face of the fact that we just don't know what's going to happen. Now, it, you make uh, very many good points in that, but I'm going to stick on this uh, one kind of the idea of communicating what risk really is for kind of from the mathematical perspective and that's something that i find uh, reading articles that you've written and watching these videos that you are very good at you're a very clear communicator when it comes to mathematical and statistical information now that's not something that a lot of people who study mathematics study statistics study even science are necessarily good at it's, it's communicating clearly to a more general audience what uh, what allowed you to really get this very clear and very strong voice for this sort of communication? Yeah, that's, that's really kind of you. And I think what it is is the fact that before I got this job a few years ago, I'd had, had sort of 30 years essentially as a, as a practicing statistician, trained in mathematics. And so I was doing methodology and publishing in methodolo methodological journals as a, as a sort of academic statistician, but also being involved in a big range of applications, in particular in medicine. So I've spent decade after decade having to explain to doctors about what actually are quite subtle issues um, in, in statistical analysis, but in language that they can understand and they appreciate and, and enhances the communication between us. I mean, if you think any of this risk stuff is difficult, just to try to explain statistical significance to an audience. I mean, it's a nightmare. <laughs> you know, and these are the, you know, there's absolutely bread and butter areas of statistics are really tricky to explain. They're difficult. I mean, that's one of the things I've just, you know, trying to write an article, a maths education website on, which I called, you know, why do people find probability and statistics so difficult? And my, you know, the answer is because they're difficult. <laughs> <laughs> and they're not in, uh, and it's not intuitive, you know. Frankly, it's really tricky this stuff, um, and it I think takes a lot of practice to uh, to try to, to try to get the, the ideas over. Um, but I just love trying to do it. You know, it's the thing I really love doing is taking some tr quite tricky issues and trying to explain them. For example, you know, in survival analysis, trying to explain issues that's quite can be quite a tricky thing to explain to people um, and that's actually what I'm getting more involved with now as I get more involved in um, risk communication to individuals about their their heart risk etc cetera, etc cetera, their risk of various things happening to them in the future 
I think it's it's uh, being, doing applied statistics is a really good practice for just being forced to communicate this stuff. So you're saying that, I mean, applied statistics, since you actually do end up having to talk to people in industry, well, it's in your case, talking to, say, medical professionals. Now, is there anything else that you found that has really helped other than just having to talk to people about it? Is there specific uh, suggestions you might have to someone who is looking to develop a clearer voice and understanding other, or is it just, should you talk to people a lot? Well, I think practice, practice, practice. Um, I now do a lot of schools work, which it's taken me some time to get into that. And I'm gradually getting with younger and younger kids. Um, I haven't about 12, 13 years old is about the youngest I've been talking to so far, but I'd love to learn the skills to be able to talk to even younger kids. I, th I think it's so important and uh, I'm, re I'm really, really enjoying it. So I, I think it is a matter of practice. I, in fact, also got media training from my employer, the Medical Research Council. I had a couple of, of training sessions and I found that was quite really very useful. Um, I mean, uh, some people in the media rather jeer at people who've been media trained. And it doesn't have, mean that you have to become one of these politicians who just stonewalls all the um, all the questions that are asked or, or, the, or the, of course, the chairman of BP being interrogated in the US about the oil spill. So it, it doesn't mean working like that. It actually just tries to mean, I think, trying to sort out your brain before you get interviewed about something and trying to get your your ideas over in a way that is as comprehensible and yeah, as, as human as possible. So one of those aspects, I think, is, is just trying to reveal the fact that you are, even though you're a scientist, you do, in fact, have a beating heart inside you. And that, that this is part and parcel, uh, your, your sort of humanity and your sort of, you know, just general, you know, just being a person getting on with their life um, is an integral part of, of your study, in fact. That's why I tend to use myself quite a lot as examples in, in, um, in a lot of my sort of narratives you know, about risk. Yeah, you need to tell stories. You need to be able to tell stories to, to get people's interest. Now, you mentioned talking to younger and younger people. And one of the things that you are doing to do that is, I believe it's called the What Are the Odds Hands-On Risk and Probability Show? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's for the Millennium Project in Cambridge, correct? Yeah, yeah. M Millennium Mathematics Project. Yeah, yeah. we've got a full-time person who goes around schools, you know, doing this what are the odds. And we started calling it sort of the risk roadshow. But, you know, everyone in the schools thought it was something to do with health and safety and how they had to be careful in the playground and in sports and things like that. So that we had to change the name because risk, the word risk, got a really bad connotation in schools as being something that uh, is just a sort of bureaucratic of deadening force on all the things that they actually quite like to do. So we call it what are the odds? We concentrate on games and, you know, a certain amount of, of lotteries and uh, scams as well, how you can be conned um, in, you know, when you, when people are trying to get money out of you or whatever. So, you know, we try to make it as light as possible and end up with a sort of quiz show, you know, who wants to be a millionaire type quiz show. And we, we also use what's quite nice, these automatic voting devices that we hand out to the kids in the class so they can vote on the answers to questions and the and the distribution of answers appears on the screen and then we can tell them which is the right one and they get scored and all this kind of stuff. So that all goes down very well. I want to make a bit of a transition here. So far we've been talking more about the directly public work that you have been doing recently, but you are also one of the most cited uh, statisticians uh, in the world, actually. I was wondering if you could uh, tell us a little bit about why you ended up getting interested in studying statistics uh, as essentially your life. Oh, well, well, I started off doing maths. I you know, went to Oxford to do maths, concentrated on pure maths rather than applied maths. And, you know, I really liked the pure maths. But, you know, to be honest, it got too difficult. <laughs> yeah, you know, too Goodness me, it got difficult. Yeah, so around about halfway through the second year, I this is really too much for me. And um, so I looked around for something that looked a bit easier. And I was, I was very fortunate. I had an inspiring um, lecturer and tutor there, Adrian Smith, and who got me interested in the idea of statistics. And first, when I, my first statistics course, I nearly gave up. It was so tedious. It was untrue. Really couldn't stand it at all. But then I got, interest, got interested in you know more modern ideas of what's called Bayesian statistics and decision theory. And uh, this started getting very interesting indeed. You know, there really seemed to be some powerful ideas that I found very exciting, genuinely exciting, and still do. And those basic ideas, you know, I've been carrying around me now for, oh, God, 35 now. Yeah, yeah, over 35 years. And they're still just as fresh and exciting, and I use them in my work all the time. 
And and these are you know basic ideas about you know the philosophy of probability. What is probability? Does it exist? You know, you know what is it? If it's not you know there's a mathematical theory of probability. Well, what does it actually mean? Uh, and it's really tricky. You know, what does probability mean? You ask ten people, you get ten different answers. Even you know in the trade among mathematicians and, and probabilists and statisticians, you get different answers. Um, I've got a particular ideological point of view, the the Bayesian point of view that actually says that probability doesn't exist. You know, it's we. We make up these numbers. They, you know, they are subjective judgments that reflect our understanding of the world. It doesn't exist in the outside world, except possibly at a subatomic level. And I might be prepared to believe that. But apart from that, all probabilities are inventions of ourselves. So, yeah, that's quite a fairly extreme point of view. I find that it's very useful, and everything I do now in my public work reinforces the idea that that's the correct way to interpret probabilities and numerical risks, that they're constructions on the basis of our available knowledge, and they don't actually objectively exist. Now, you, you mentioned specifically that you study Bayesian statistics. Now, yeah, I, yeah. my background in statistics is very poor. I'm actually a graph theorist by uh, my research. And so I was wondering if you could explain maybe, I mean, other than just what you did about Bayesian statistics, but also what the other prevailing models within the statistical world might be. Yeah, this is a really important issue. Oh, by the way, the other thing I really enjoyed doing in Oxford was graph theory, but that, that got a bit difficult as well. <laughs> so uh, philosophical schools of statistics, but we can simplify it down to two, I suppose. Now, one is, you know, the classical framework that thinks of probability in terms of, of relative frequencies, you know, asymptotic stuff. If you do something a thousand times, what proportion, you know, as n goes to infinity, what proportion of the time this event occurs is the definition of the probability. So it's treated as a state of the world. You may not know what it is, but it's an objective state of the world that is defined in terms of relative frequencies, repeatable events. The Bayesian perspective is totally different. It says the probability doesn't exist. It's not a state of the world. It's a state of our understanding of the world. It's our, it's our personal belief about what the event is. It doesn't have to be any re repetition. And so it's quite, when I talk about the probability of uh, who's going to be the next president of the United States, you know, who, who will be, and I, and I go onto a website and, and find out the betting odds, those probabilities are to me just as much probabilities as the probability of a coin coming up 50% or whatever. They're just as valid as probabilities, even though they change every day as people change their beliefs about who might be the next president. Those are still probabilities. They obey the mathematical theory of probability, and they can be used in exactly the same way. And literally, of course, they are used to place bets, which is the most important application of probability. Essentially, the Bayesian point of view sees all probabilities in terms of betting odds. And that underlies, actually, has very deep implications for the way in which you, you know, make estimates, when you make, when you make judgments about what the true, about uh, statistics in the real world. You know, like you're looking at a drug and you want to know what would be the average benefit on this drug if I treat this population. Well, that's an unknown quantity. It's a state of the world. Um, I don't know what it is. And so I can put a probability distribution over that state of the world, that parameter, that mean effect. That reflects my uncertainty, my personal uncertainty. It might vary from person to person because they have different knowledge. So the Bayesian point of view says you can actually put probability distributions over unknown states of the world, essentially expressing your personal uncertainty about a fact that you just don't know, you just don't have incomplete knowledge of. Nothing to do with future events necessarily, nothing to do with randomness at all. It purely expresses our personal uncertainty. Now, this can lead to very deep um, differences in philosophy about the way to handle data, and in particular to make, um, you know, make predictions and make judgments about, about the world, because it means that we're allowed, if necessary, to bring in our own judgments. Uh, it's not just data alone. Um, data adds to our judgments, and Bayes' theorem is a mathematical way of learning from the world in a formal way, updating our judgments on the basis of new data, but that's not you know, an absolutely essential requisite. Um, we can base judgments on our judgment, um, base probabilities on our judgments alone if necessary. This is quite a controversial approach, but which recently has, has achieved enormous um, growth in the statistics area, so much so that I'd say that almost the majority of papers now published in many areas of statistics have in fact got a Bayesian philosophy behind them. One of the things that's driven the, the gain in Bayesian methods is the fact that computational tools to, to handle this um, uh, updating of our beliefs about you know, large numbers of parameters on the basis of new information, things that 
up to 20 years ago were mathematically sort of infeasible to carry out. You just couldn't do the integrations. You couldn't handle the huge multidimensional probability distributions that were necessary. The, the, the growth of simulation methods in, in computing has led to the, those computations becoming not only possible, but sometimes the only way to handle these really big problems, which means that engineers have embraced Bayesian methods with wholeheartedly machine learning, all those areas, and now enormous uses of Bayesian methods. So I made my sort of most of my reputation on Bayesian computation, uh, writing so or you know, with a team writing software called Bugs and WinBugs, which is the biggest, most widely used Bayesian software in the world. And we developed some methodology as well. And so that's why I got my citations. It worked very well. <laughs> I tell you, if you want a lot of citations, uh, I, I, I did an article about this, uh, Thompson ISI. If you want a lot of citations, you know, introduce a method and then make sure you, you produce a software in which that method can be used. And, and if that software is widely used, it means that every time someone does it you get a reference you get a citation which means that this paper we wrote about a bayesian model uh, selection criterion is now it's the third most highly cited paper in the entire mathematical sciences in the whole world <laughs> in the last 10 years <laughs> so <laughs> that's how you that's how you go in your citations <laughs> yeah so so who would be it the uh the paper about methodology using matlab and maple uh <laughs> Yeah, well, no, no, well, if you can produce a method that fills a gap, and people were struggling before, they, they can do something that nothing else can do, and you provide the software, then um, that's the way to get the citations. Now, now you mentioned you mentioned betting, and yep. that is that is something a little bit little bit on my head right now because I I told you before the interview, and people who listen to this, even though this is going to come out after I'm back home know that I am going over to uh, England for about 10 yeah. days. I, I'm yeah. leaving on the day that I'm recording this. And one thing that I, is, is quite different, even though I do live in Las Vegas, so it's not different for me, is, is the bookies. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. You have a, a lot more of that. And I, I have a very personal uh, attachment to the English Premier League as well, uh, specifically to Arsenal, who I support. You have written a, uh, or you did a thing for more or less, uh, the statistical yep. radio show on, I believe it's on BBC. Uh, and you actually uh, did a little bit of, uh, it was a predictive model, and you got, uh, one week you got 9 out of 10 match results right, two exact scores right. Yeah, so yeah, could yeah. you tell me who's going to win, Arsenal or Tottenham, in a couple of, it's not this weekend, but uh, weekend next? No, I can't, um, but if I had a while and I had, and I had the... <laughs> The scores up to now, if, if I had the recent performance of the teams, I could give you a reasonable probability about it. You know, it wouldn't, you know, not a bad betting odds for it. <laughs> um, because, you know, as you know, you know, gambling's, you know, is big, big business everywhere. Um, but the mathematics of gambling, I think, is extremely interesting, in, especially in sports gambling. In fact, and, you know, there's a lot of work done on that. In fact, my predecessor, professor of statistics at Cambridge University, has now left to work full time for a sports betting company predicting football and horse racing results. And the, 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 I mean, there's quite a few publications about predicting football results. But what happens, of course, is that a team starts publishing papers on predicting football results, and then they get rather good at it, and, and then suddenly the papers stop, <laughs> and they leave universities, and they start making money. And that's exactly what happened with the people I know. So uh, the, the method I've used on the radio is just a fairly basic model. It's about the version of the model people were using publicly about 10 years ago before they started getting, you know, trying to be a lot cleverer. And it's, it's actually, you know, a fairly straightforward model. Model. You know, you you for every team you estimate their attack strength based on the uh, the number of goals they've scored so far. Um, you know whether they're scoring above or below average, and you also estimate their, their defence weakness in terms of whether they're letting in above or below average goals. One of the first things you do is is what you're modelling is not trying to predict whether they win, draw, or lose. You you try to predict the actual number of goals. So you, you really go for uh, a probability on every single match result. And that, that's the way the model, the correct way to do the modeling. Because it turns out that if you use these factors, you know, looking at whether teams tend to score or let in above average number of goals, it's fairly easy to get an expected number of goals that each team would score. So, you know, I don't know, in your match, you might get something you expect 
Spurs to score 1.2 and Arsenal to score 2.3 or something like that. Now, you know, nobody can score that number of goals, but because we know about the Poisson distribution and the fact that goals in a match do follow pretty close to a, a Poisson distribution, given their expectation, that you can actually use the Poisson distribution to work out the probability of any particular goal combination. And so therefore you can add up the probabilities on the diagonal, you get the probability of a draw, you add up the probabilities on the upper diagonal, and you get probability of a win and lose, etc., which you then can use to compare with the odds being given by bookies to work out whether it's worth placing a bet or not. And these are the slightly more sophisticated models than this, this ones the bookies use in order to set the odds as well. So, it, you know, it's not enormously sophisticated statistical modeling. We were lucky one year when we did it. Um, the next year I tried it and did really badly, but that's the way it goes. You know, I, I said, oh, it's just regression to the mean. You know, I was luckier. I was lucky one year. You can't expect luck to last. So I don't do it. I don't place the bets myself. Um, but I do use it actually in teaching in schools because, it, you know, to try to interest 16-year-old boys in mathematics uh, who are all obsessed with football, it, it's quite good to say I'm going to, you know, try to predict next week's football results. Yeah, it's quite quite a good teaching tool. Now, one last thing I would like to talk about. This is something that I really like to bring up whenever I have a little bit of knowledge of it, because I think that it really helps kind of show how people get out of of mathematics, not not out as in stop doing it, but out as in something to kind of balance the life, which is something I feel very important. And I know that you are very interested in both, I believe, stained glass and samba drumming. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and so I was, I was sort of wondering how that ends up tying into your life and and the importance it has for you. Oh, that's interesting. Well, the stained glass. Anyone you know want to click through all my work from my website and everything. Most of my stained glass is mathematical, um, because I'm not really an artist. I, I hardly call myself a craftsman, but I can actually make. You know, I've taught myself and been to classes to. Um, I can actually put together a stained glass panel. Reason we do the leading and cut the glass and things like that. But I'm not. I'm not a creative artist at all. So I tend to use geometrical designs. But I, they can be statistical, you know, Latin square designs and Sudoku patterns are very good. And, you know, you can do all sorts of different designs that, that give uh, a very pleasing symmetry, very pleasing pictures. But, uh, but I've done other ones. I've done cross-section. I, I actually had a commission and done a brain map, you know, um, a cross-section, a functional MRI image of a brain, coloured, makes some lovely patterns, very nice patterns, which you can, which I did in glass. And that works out very well. So I do sort of scientific and, and uh, mathematical glass and there's all sorts of stuff you know you know so nice geometric shapes some of the tessellations are more tricky because they, you, there's only certain ways in which you can cut glass you can't really do sharp indents to glass and so you know you can't make all the patterns in glass very easily so i like that samba drumming i just like doing it. my sense of rhythm is not wonderful but it's not too bad and i'm um I'm a second-rate samba drummer but they put up with me if i just stand at the back and go boom 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 and that's what I like doing. Okay, well, uh, Professor, I want to thank you so much for spending this time and talking to me on the phone. No, it's been a pleasure. Been a, ple been a pleasure. Real, thank you so much. Well, that is it for today's Combinations and Permutations. I want to thank you all for listening. And also, I want you to please go check out acmescience.com where you can find links about today's episode as well as find out more information about Strongly Connected Components, which is the show that this show today featured episodes from. Wow, that's only mildly confusing. Also, send me any feedback, samuel at acmescience.com. That's my personal email address. Please reach out to me there. The music I'm talking over is, as always, taken from SP12, who you can find over at opsound.org. G. And also, as always, this is a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike licensed podcast. And if you don't know what that means, head on over to Creative Commons. Search them on Google. Find out what they're all about. Because, admittedly, it's pretty rad. Once again, thank you for listening, and please come back for the next episode of Combinations and permutations.